Good evening, Carolina Conference, night two of camp meeting. Do me a favor, let's use our imagination. Uh, it's uh, Saturday night of camp meeting and and all the meetings are over and everybody's greeting everybody. And, and you walk down to that special place at camp meeting where there are books for sale and, oh, you smell it, corn dogs veggie corn dogs oh man that i think you know and i know my i'm a pastor my favorite part of camp meeting should be should be the preaching or the the study or the rich blessings from god well i'm just going to tell you right now the richest blessing from god corn dogs with that yellow tartar sauce thing they give you oh man i miss camp meeting and i wish i was there in person with you uh, but we're watching from our homes and, uh, and it is what it is. Hopefully this pandemic will be done sooner than later and we can get back to normal because, uh, I miss normal, at least when it comes to camp meeting. Hey, tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to open up scripture with you again. Uh, uh, get a Bible if you don't have one, maybe get it on your phone. Uh, uh Matthew chapter 5 this time. We went through Matthew chapter 1 last night, and uh, tonight I would like to go through Matthew chapter 5 with you. Uh, it's uh, part of the chapter anyway. Um, we call it the, the Beatitudes, right? So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right to it. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that as we open your word, you'll bless us, uh, enrich our understanding, and grow our hearts toward you so that we can be more inclined to do thy will here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. As you're opening, I want to give you just a little bit of a background of what's going on here. Uh, Matthew wrote the book of Matthew with intention. He wrote it with purpose. He wants you to view Jesus as a certain kind of person. If you've never heard of him before, and he wrote specifically to Jews, and, and so if you're a Jew who's never heard of Jesus, he wants you to understand something about Jesus that's very, very important. Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus is the new Moses. If you haven't noticed before, in Matthew, there's all kinds of references to Jesus and Moses. For instance, in the birth story, right? In the birth story, we have uh, 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 a king that tries to kill Jesus when he's just a little baby. That king tries to kill all the babies two years, the male babies two years and younger, in order to prevent them from him from rising up and being a ruler, right? Uh, do you remember anything else in the Bible that seems like that? Yeah, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh tried to do that, right? So where does Jesus go to? His family flees to Egypt. And then to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. He goes back to the promised land where he becomes the leader of Israel, right? The king of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 5, there's another reference, and there's lots of them in the book of Matthew that, that refer to Jesus as the, or that infer that Jesus is a new Moses. In this one, Jesus goes up onto a mountainside and delivers the new law. And if you know anything about the Beatitudes, it's 
broken up like the law, the Torah is broken up in the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is this new Moses. He's going to deliver the new law. Well, if Jesus is going to uh, deliver the new law to the new kingdom so that everybody can understand uh, how they're supposed to be if they're going to be followers of him, and that's what Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are. It's Jesus saying, if you want to be a follower of God, this is what it's going to look like. This is what you should be. He starts it out in the most peculiar way. Open up Matthew chapter 5. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside, and there's crowds there, right? The people. And he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Hmm. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in all the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, there they are. The Beatitudes. <laughs> uh, what's he talking about? I mean, these things seem to be a little bit oxymoronical, don't they? Right? I mean, blessed are you when you mourn? It, have you ever mourned? I, I have. I had a young lady in our life. She was uh, uh, at a school that I was a principal of. And actually, when I met her, I was still the pastor on that same campus. And, and she came bouncing over to me my first night at, at school registration. I didn't know anybody in town. I just moved there. And she came bouncing up to me and introduced herself. And automatically, I looked at her and I assumed she looked like a 12-year-old little boy. She, that's what I thought was standing in front of me was a 12-year-old little boy. And as we were talking, she looked at me and she said, you think I'm a boy, don't you? And I went, oh, uh, you're not? She goes, oh, and she stomps her foot and she turns around and walks off. I'm not a boy, she said as she stomped off. And I looked at the fellow sitting, standing next to me there, uh, Mr. Romer, one of the teachers there at the school. And I said, who was that? He, well, that's Megan. He said, Megan is, um, uh, she, she, she kind of dresses like that to, to disappear. She doesn't want people to see any femininity in her. And I said, well, what's the, what's the deal? Well, come to find out, Megan uh, had quite a story behind her. Um, anytime you have a little town like Wenatchee, Washington in the news, uh, it's, uh, it's probably not a good thing. Uh, there was a, a, a ring of people uh, centered around the local Mormon church there in, in Wenatchee at the time that were accused of uh, um, being inappropriate with young people, with children. And uh, Megan's family was in the middle of that. 
police came in, took her and put her and her brothers and sisters in foster care, arrested the mom and dad. The abuse uh, was so um, brutal uh, to that little girl that uh, her foster mother told me that uh, she wasn't even able to, to walk properly for a little while after they got her uh, medical attention. Um, the, the abuse was horrific. Well, she ended up being the star witness at, uh, at these trials for the prosecutor. At nine years old, uh, her testimony and the testimony from her medical examinations put a lot of people behind bars. And, and that wasn't popular in town because a lot of the people that were put behind bars were popular uh, in their church and in their, in their city. And, and so the, the town was divided over this. Everybody was there covering it. All the news organizations there were covering it. And at the time, there weren't as many as there are now. Um, but, but everybody had a story on it and, uh, and Megan's little name was, even though she was nine years old, was floating around. And so it came to pass that, uh, in school where she was at when she was in third grade, uh, the kids started making fun of her. They started calling her horrible, horrible names that you shouldn't call anybody, but usually you don't even hear these words until you're, you know, a later teenager or something. And, and accusing her of being the one uh, that was flirtatious enough to make all these things happen at nine years old, right? And uh, the the teachers in that school were not sticking up for her because they were kind of wavering on whether whether people were in bar, behind bars uh, uh, legitimately or not. Well, Megan would come home crying every day, and and her foster mom finally uh, decided to put her into a Christian school. So she did. She put her into a little Adventist school. They didn't know who Adventists were. They put her into a little Adventist school. And by the time I met her, uh, she was uh, 17 years old. Well, uh, she came in. I was teaching Bible there. I always try to volunteer and teach Bible wherever I am uh, as a pastor, uh, just to get to know the kids and the families and everything. So I was there and, and I was uh, uh, teaching Bible and she came hopping in with a couple of friends to my office on the church on the same campus. And and uh, she came into my office and she said, listen, I want to be baptized. Uh, we're going out on this big retreat as a school, a spiritual retreat. And at the end of the retreat, I want you to baptize me. And I said, oh, that'd be great. And her friends wanted to be baptized too. And and so we studied together and the retreat happened. And by the time we uh, uh, got into the water, <laughs> the waves at Rosario Beach, it was uh, on, on the ocean, on the Puget Sound, uh, they were coming in pretty hard. And I said, are you sure you want to do this? I mean, these waves are coming in hard and it's going to be cold. And she said, oh, let's go. And she drug me out into the water and I timed it just perfect so that when a wave was coming over, I put her down and that wave just completely covered almost both of us. And and uh, she jumped out of that water and she was so excited. She wrapped her arms and her legs around my whole body like a big vice. And she kept yelling, I love Jesus so much. I love him so much that I had to walk out carrying her. And she finally dropped to the sand and she went and hugged everybody on the beach until she was dry. Uh, we got back to the church and and it wasn't but uh, a little while that my wife and I started having her babysit our son, great kid, and, and we trusted her. And so she'd stay overnight on the weekends every once in a while. Well, one morning uh, she came in and, and uh, we were eating breakfast together after everybody woke up. And, and she said, you know, uh, I'm 18 now. Yeah, we know that. Well, the foster system is about ready to be done with me. And, and uh, my foster mom's going to be taking in more kids and... I think I'm going to move in here. I said, what? 
my wife looked at me and I looked at my wife and I, I thought my wife would say, well, no, no, that's not a good idea. My wife says, oh, I've always wanted a daughter. I'm so glad you're going to move in with us. And I said, Wendy. And, and Megan looked at me and she looked at my wife and she said, and I'm not going to call you Mark and Wendy anymore. I'm going to call you mom and dad because you're really my mom and dad now. Oh, I said, I feel really uncomfortable with that. And she said, oh, you'll get used to it. <laughs> I'll get used to it. So she moves in. Next day, I smell something. And I went up, I go up to her room, and she's painting her room. She didn't ask me. She's painting it green on the inside. And I said, hey, 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 what are you doing? You're painting this room. I didn't say you could paint the room. And she looked at me and smiled and said, hi, Dad. You'll get used to it. Well, Megan grew into our hearts, and, and sure enough, we did think of her as a daughter. Uh, we, we helped her start to get through college, and we got her a, a vehicle to drive and uh, helped her get some work, and, and everything was going great. Uh, she took over our local youth group, and, and she started preaching in church, and, uh, and always on the front row, smiling and praying with all the gusto she had, and, and, and singing every hymn as loud as she could. Couldn't carry a tune in a bucket with a lid on it. It was painful to listen to, but she didn't care, singing joyfully to the Lord. And uh, she just became this, she took over the youth group. She started running the youth group because she thought the youth pastor was doing an okay job, but she could do a little bit better. And he, he, of course, mentored her into leadership, and she did great. And uh, one Sunday, uh, I had to get up early, and or maybe it was a, a Thursday or a Friday, and I had to fly to Oklahoma to speak at a camp meeting there. And she got up early, and and chauffeured me to the to the airport and jumped up and gave me one of her famous hugs and said, love you, Dad. See you when you get back. I said, I can't wait to see you either. And I jumped on the airplane and flew to Oklahoma. And that's when I got the, the, the phone call that uh, something had happened. Uh, there was an accident that uh, there was uh, a youth activity that she had organized and it was down by the river and and they had guitars out and the kids were all sitting in the sun and singing and, and just hanging out and, and having a good time fellowshipping together. And there were a couple of girls out in the water, part of Megan's youth group. And, and they were floating down towards some dangerous rapids. And there was a noise. Some people started yelling, hey, girls, watch out. And Megan jumped up and she ran down. She ran down that beach like the kids were yelling, Megan, don't go in the water. It's dangerous. She wouldn't have anything of it. She dove into that water and swam toward those kids. And, and Megan gave her life uh, doing that. Hardest thing my family's ever gone through. It was devastating. It ru Really, it, it ruined us for a good year, uh, a year that we'll never get back. Uh, it wounded my son, who was older now and thought he had a big sister and Ruined my wife and I. Our, our marriage suffered because of it uh, for, for a little while. It, it was like being run over by a truck. And then somebody put it in reverse and ran over us again to make sure the job was done, put it in drive and did it again. Gut punched. Big funeral. Every day I found myself sitting on the porch swing on our back porch. I couldn't go to work. I, uh, I could barely eat. I was mourning. Mourning. If somebody would have come up to me and said, Boy, Mark, don't you feel blessed right now? Isn't, isn't God good? Blessed are you when you mourn. 
honestly, I'd have punched him in the throat. Blessed are you when you're mourned? Kidding me? And then Jesus says things like, uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, for that to be true, to be a peacemaker, that means there's conflict, right? Have you ever been in a moment of conflict or in a season of conflict? Now, if you're a pastor watching this, the answer is yes. <laughs> Uh, personalities in church and everything. You've probably had to sit in your office countless times, right? Watching people go back and forth like it's a tennis match. You got to stand in between them like Aaron standing between the living and the dead. When you're going through that kind of conflict, whether it's family conflict or a job conflict or relationship conflict, and you're the one having to stand between people, being a peacemaker. If somebody comes up to you and said, boy, blessed, or, or don't you feel blessed right now as a peacemaker? No, I don't feel blessed. I feel like I'm always at war, always trying to stand in between these idiots. Blessed? <laughs> Jesus says things like, uh, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, there's two ways to read this. One of them is literally uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it means something's been done to you that's unfair, that's unrighteous. Somebody has done something to you just to make you angry, just to, to, to put a burr in your saddle. And they're not sorry. They're, they're glad they did it. They said those things to you. They did those things to you, and they're glad they did it. And it's unfair. You didn't provoke it. You didn't want it. It just happened. Well, I, I've had that happen in my life. I've had people say things about me, spread rumors about me. Now, this not, doesn't happen all the time, and I'm not wah, wah, wang, but you know what I'm talking about. People have said things about you or about, and I know it's happened to me, that, that almost ruined my reputation until, you know, a year later, they came forward and said, oh, I just made the whole thing up. And I told my conference president at the time, I told you. <laughs> but there was a whole year in ministry. I thought, you know, I don't need this. I don't, I don't have to sacrifice my life for the church. I can make a lot more money doing something else. If somebody would have come up to me during that conflict while I'm trying to make peace, when I'm trying, when I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for righteousness, when I just want the truth to come out, if somebody would have said, Man, you're so blessed that these people are accusing you falsely. I'm going to slam the door in their face. No, I don't feel blessed. What are you talking about? I don't feel blessed. The other way to, to interpret this is uh, Luke chapter 6 is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke wasn't concerned about you thinking that Jesus was Moses. So Luke says he went down onto a level place, which was pretty interesting that he has that distinction. But he says, just plain, blessed are you when you're hungry and thirsty. Now, most of us have never been 
hungry and thirsty. Oh, I know sometimes we feel like we're hungry and thirsty and we say things like, I'm starving, you know, and we get into the refrigerator and start going at it. And um, most of us haven't experienced what some in the world experience, hunger and thirst. I, I've been to parts of the world and seen with my own eyes Children with arms this big around and distended stomachs who are just about ready to die of malnutrition. Places in the world where water wasn't really readily available because the water you could get would give you some sort of a disease. And people had to walk miles and miles and miles with jugs on their head. Can you imagine me walking up to one of those mothers with a child that's just about ready to die and say, oh, you're so blessed that you and your child are so hungry and thirsty. Mm, what a blessing. I, I would have got a quick exit out of the country for sure. Jesus says these things and it doesn't make sense. You're blessed when you're poor in spirit. When you're, you're blessed when you're persecuted. Why would he say this? Well, let me tell you a story of why. <laughs> then let me tell you why. So I was... Uh, in eighth grade, when my mom married the second time, she met this guy uh, in, in a prison ministry situation. She would leave for the uh, for, for every weekend in the summer. She'd leave my sister and I at home, and, and she would go over to Walla Walla, Washington, the town they liked so nice they named it twice. And, and uh, she would go over there, and my aunt and uncle were involved in prison ministry. So she would go to the prison with them and do these church services for all the inmates. And while she was there, she met, she, she met this guy that she started to have an attraction to. He was 10 years younger than her, and he was a big strapping guy, kind of good looking. And and uh, she thought, man, you know, this is a super guy. And he could put on, he could put on the charm. And somehow they started dating, even though he was in prison. They would write letters every day. And, and uh, she came home and announced to my sister and I, we didn't know anything like this was going on. We were just at home, you know, playing with our friends and watching TV and doing whatever teenage and pre-teenage kids do. Uh, well, while their mom is gone for the weekend, and some of that was good stuff, and some of it wasn't so good, but you know that's what happens when you leave kids alone. Well, she comes home one day and she says, uh, "Kids, uh, I'm getting married." <laughs> I know what? <laughs> getting married? How are you getting married? You're not even dating anybody, mom. Uh, maybe one foot in front of the other, one step at a time here. And, and she says, well, no, I've been seeing somebody. I've been seeing somebody over in Walla Walla. You know, when I go to visit your aunt and uncle, I'm not just visiting them. I'm visiting uh, your, your, who's going to be your new stepfather. And we were like, okay, tell us about this guy. And she goes, well, kids, sit down. <laughs> Whenever the parent says, kids, sit down, that's never good news. She says, uh, his name is Donald, and Donald is in the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. 
Now, my sister and I looked at each other and said, uh, penitentiary. And I looked at her and said, Mom, what is he, a guard? Is he like the, the warden of the penitentiary? Does he work there? No, kids, he's an inmate. Well, my sister and I just explode. Mom, you can't marry an inmate. What did he do? And she said, well, he won't tell me what he did. But whatever it was, he's in prison 20 years to life. I said, Mom, that sounds serious. You should find out what he did. You know, the past is the past. She said, yeah, until it becomes the present again. Oh, and kids, you're going to meet him next weekend. We're going as a family out to Uncle Mickey and Aunt May Jean's, and we're going to go and see Donald. So we did. We go out and visit Donald, and Donald is huge. Donald is six foot three. He weighs 265 pounds. He is, he is muscle bound. He has got a big handlebar mustache, a big tattoo on his arm. And, and he comes across as a pretty nice guy. I mean, you know, for somebody that's serving 20 years to life. And he's complimentary to me and he's complimentary to my sister. And, and, uh, we, we have a decent meeting there. It was, it was awkward and weird. You know, we're in a prison visiting our new stepdad to be. And, uh, but we get back home and my mom says, listen, let's start writing letters to the parole board in the state capitol and let's just, uh, see if we can't get Donald out a little early. So we're writing letters every, every week to this parole board. Dear parole board, uh, Donald promises he won't do whatever he did again. Uh, um, love us. And you know, we're sending these letters every week. And sure enough, they let Donald out early. 18 years after he gets put in prison, he is let out early. Now, what we didn't know at the time and what my mom never knew until she died was why Donald was put in prison. I looked it up after the age of Google, you can look anything up. And I looked it up after she died and after he died. All the stories were in the local newspaper, actually just north of me. I'm in Portland, Oregon, in Vancouver, Washington. This is where all of this happened. Donald uh, was at home alone when a 41-year-old Lutheran church lady went and knocked on his door to hand a couple of tracts out uh, about Jesus. And he ended up brutally raping her and murdering her, leaving her body on the side of the road. Comes home. His mom got home while he was dumping the body. Sees blood all over the foyer of their, of their little home. Calls the police. The police show up. And then the Donald drives up in a pickup truck with blood all in the back of it and blood on himself. 17 years old. And confesses right away to what he did. Nobody ever knew why. Never reported in the newspaper why he did it. He just did it. This is who Donald was. And he gets out of prison and a month in a halfway house, he's on parole. My mom marries him the day he gets out of the halfway house and brings him home. And it was horrible. He was verbally abusive, he was physically violent, he was unfaithful to my mom, he was brutal. Took a swing at my sister, connected, police were called, they didn't even arrest him. My sister moved out when she was 13, 
I won't say where, this is, that's her story. You wouldn't approve. <laughs> and I decided to stay home just to kind of guard my mom. And it wasn't easy. I learned what it was like to go through a door without using a doorknob. I learned that uh, plaster gives when your head hits it. Along the way, I'm going to this little Adventist school that my mom wanted me to go to, and I'm in ninth grade, and Mrs. Tate, she, <laughs> she's uh, standing in front of the classroom, and, and she uh, looks down, and I don't know what she saw, I really don't, um, but she looks at me, and she kind of frowns, and she says, class, uh, no class today, everybody go, we're going to we're going to go outside and play uh, baseball or soccer or something like that. And everybody jumped up, including me, saying, yay, who wants to go to English class when you can go out and play baseball? And she says, except for Mark, Mark, I need to talk to you. And of course, my classmates, ooh, what did you do? And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, no, what did I do? Because I was kind of always doing stuff. Took me into the conference room and Mrs. Tate says, uh, Mark, tell me what's going on in your home. No, nothing. Why? Mark, you have somebody new living in your home now, and what's happening in your home? <laughs> nothing. I don't want to talk about it. Everything's fine. I'm okay. Mark, I'm not going to let you out of this room until you tell me what's going on in your home. Boy, she pressed me and pressed me and pressed me. Half an hour later, I just get angry, and I lose it, and I, I just blurt it all out. You want to know what's going on in my house? You really want to know? A lot of, and I use some language, he's hitting me, and I don't know what else he's doing, but, but I just described everything. I just, I let it all out. I, I, I blurted it all. I just, I lost it. When I'm done with my tantrum and I started to become silent again, I looked up and, and Mrs. Tate was crying. She reached in her purse. She took some keys out. She took a key off the key ring and she slapped it on the table and she slid it in front of me. And she said, Mark, this is a key to my house. I want you to use it. I live a half a mile away from you. It's an easy bike ride for you. And I know you have a bike because you bike to school sometimes. Come to my house. Stay at my house. We have a guest room. I got a full refrigerator. 15-year-olds <laughs> like to hear that. And I did. I, I pretty much moved in. I was there all the time. That woman saved my life. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're a peacemaker. Blessed are you when you, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's Jesus talking about? See, Jesus, when he stands up on that mountain and he announces the new law for the new community, he opens up with the Beatitudes. Because in the new community, when you're mourning, you don't mourn alone. The new community comes around 
and they gather around you. When I was mourning the death of Megan, I would sit there back there by myself and one by one church members and, and Megan's schoolmates would come and they would sit next to me on that swing and they'd put an arm around me and they'd bring food. And they, they wouldn't even have to talk a lot. They just were there with me. They were mourning with me. And it made all the difference in the world. When I was being persecuted, when I was hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Mrs. Tate gave me a key. Mrs. Tate invited me into her home. Because in the new community, Jesus says, when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you don't hunger and thirst alone. We stand with you. When you're being persecuted, we stand with you. The new community comes together. And even though we are going to go through some of these horrible things, we're not going to go through it alone. Because the new community doesn't allow it. Nobody goes hungry and thirsty in the new community. Nobody is homeless in the new community. If you're a part of a church community, you're safe from all of that now. Yeah, it's still going to happen to you, but we're going to stand with you. And you won't go without for very long because a new community comes in. And this, this is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus is teaching us, even before he utters those words in the Lord's Prayer, he's teaching us what it means to be in the new community, what it means to have thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, we have to be the new community. We are the agents of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are the three angels of Revelation that are standing against the powers of this world and bringing Jesus' kingdom here in preparation for there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, mm, to be a part of this new community, to realize that when anybody in this community is hurting, they don't have to hurt alone. When everybody is challenged, they don't have to be challenged alone. When anybody's hungry or thirsty, whether that's for food and water or for righteousness, it won't be long before the community surrounds them and lifts them up. Jesus, may we be this new community. Amen. We'll uh, see you tomorrow night, Tuesday night. We've got a new message for you, and I, I hope you join us. Thank you, Carolina, for being so hospitable. You made, you made my, my preaching space so warm and friendly and nice, and <laughs> we're really glad that uh, we can share with you, and God bless.